everyone. Welcome back to episode three of our mini series on a monster calls. We hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. This episode, we're going to be talking about the second story and sort of the events that also lead up to that, picking up where we left off at the first story in the last episode. So the first thing that sort of happens after that first tale is Connor goes to school again and we see a little bit more about his life at school and the way his relationships at school kind of fluctuate and things. And the first thing that we get is sort of this explanation of Connor and Lily's past, like the reason why Connor no longer likes Lily despite the fact that they once were friends. And so my first question is about that relationship and your thoughts on what, I guess, it is now and how it might change in the future slash how past actions have led it to be where it is now. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think they've done a good job. Um, the, the authors and getting us, as we've talked about before, like inside Connor's head and, and doing a good job of creating a, a less developed brain um, and emotional ex, uh, maturity there because he's like 13 years old i guess um but also one that's dealing with a lot of trauma and and helping us see things through that so we might look at this and be like dude like lily didn't do anything wrong like do you know what i mean like you're you're putting a lot of blame on lily because um as it says in here there's no one else to to blame um but can't you see that that what you're doing is, is not really fair and that she's actually someone that wants to help you. But we might see that, or I might see that as like an adult reading this, who's not experiencing like severe trauma at the moment, emotional trauma. So, so everything's, you know, working a little bit differently in, in my brain, but I love how they, they write it in a way that, that the logic of his <laughs> emotional intelligence comes through even if it doesn't make sense to my logic and why Lily's a problem and why he wants to stay away from her. And, and they just have little nuggets in here on the, on the first page of the understanding section. Uh, he, he even just talks about um, him leaving for school in the morning and grandma wouldn't let him say goodbye to mom because she was kind of tired. And it says, which made him feel guilty because maybe she's tired because of the night she had and maybe last night was his fault and that there's this like guilt that again doesn't make a ton of logical sense to someone reading it but to him that's just they just it goes by pretty quick because he's just like oh yeah that made me feel guilty because it was probably my fault um and the amount of guilt here is crazy for a kid to handle but uh makes sense yeah, I guess kind of like talking on that guilt. Another thing that sort of comes out in this understanding chapter is this idea of punishment. So Miss Kwan like comes up to him. Miss Kwan's clearly picking up that something's not right about his relationship with the boys and stuff. I think she probably does understand that he's probably getting bullied in some way. But like she kind of lets that slide and she's trying to talk to Connor, but Connor isn't really, you know, reciprocating. He feels like he wants to be punished, but for some reason or another, like he says, no one would punish him for it, which somehow made him feel even worse. And this is referring to like, if he just never went to class or something like that. And mm -hmm. so I guess your thoughts on this sort of idea of guilt and how it plays into these relationships that he has with like Miss Kwan and the bullies, as well as I guess from Miss Kwan's perspective, because we kind of talked about this in the first episode, what you think about the sort of character development in showing a bit more about her. Well, um, just this passage here where it says, Miss Kwan, 
Uh, she says, I can't imagine what you must be going through, Connor. Uh, Miss Kwan said so quiet, it was almost a whisper, but if you ever want to talk, my door is always open. He couldn't look at her, couldn't see the care there, couldn't even hear it. He couldn't bear to hear it in her voice because he didn't deserve it. He felt, right, that he didn't deserve, which is why he couldn't hear the care in her voice because he felt he didn't deserve it because he felt like it's his fault. That guilt again stopped him from hearing the care in other people, um, which I think is uh, well, a big life lesson to learn because sometimes feeling guilty about something and beating ourselves up over something sometimes makes us feel better. There's an important thing there about like um, feeling guilty about something and almost, I don't know, with something, I don't know, but an important thing to remember was we're feeling guilty and, and, and putting the blame on ourselves that that stops us sometimes from hearing the care in other people, which is, could be there to help and, and heal. Um, he couldn't bear to hear the care in her voice because he felt he didn't deserve it. I think we all need to be careful with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's real. it's a really neat, uh, thing that the authors are doing here and, and not just taking this rather simple story as far as plot wise, um, with this kid, but, but taking the opportunity to try to help us understand, um, young people when they go through emotional trauma like this. Um, cause we see that Ms. Kwan is doing her, what she thinks is helpful and letting him know, Hey, I'm here. Um, but we also see how that doesn't connect to him the way that she seems to think it should. Um, and that we understand that now. And so hopefully that can help us as we, uh, go, go on in our lives and our futures, understanding things like that, I think is neat. Also, like, I don't know if this, I haven't fully landed on this yet, but his relationship with Harry, the bully, and it talks about, you know, in this section that he, Harry's the only one who he allows to like punch him and touch him. The other ones can't. And that there's this like agreement the two of them have that, that, that he wants almost in a way, and this might sound weird, but like wants to be punished by someone and that he's, he's said in his brain, like, okay, that's Harry. And I'm going to allow that because he feels that need to be punished, which is some like really interesting uh, and nuanced stuff there that they're kind of handling in this on their way to the next plot point. They take some time here to, to help us look into his emotional psyche and stuff and, and struggle with that as, as readers, which I think is, is cool. We have some more sections in here where he, uh, that I think could be really theatrical when we do it. Um, like there's this passage where it says, for a moment, the sun seems to go behind the clouds. For a moment, all Connor could see was sudden thunderstorms on the way, could feel them ready to explode in the sky and through his body and out of his fists. For a moment, he felt as if he could grab hold of the very air and twist it around Lily and rip her right into. Um, that kind of uh, the imagery of his feelings, turning his feelings into imagery, uh, which as we talked about before, is something kind of cool that you can do with theater. Um, 
So I'm, I'm excited for some of those sequences to see how they work on stage. Yeah, that's, that'll be really fun to work with. I guess sort of talking about the sort of theatrical aspect of this, this is kind of unrelated, but kind of related because this is just what it made me think of. But it's also that we get an introduction to the father, to Connor's father in this sort of section leading up. And one thing that I think is very interesting about this, just like purely like character wise, is that he's from, he's like from England, but he's gone to America. And so apparently his accent is like changed and weird. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that for whoever ends up having to play that role and figuring out what that accent is? Right. I um, I was thinking about that when I was reading that, like, oh, that'll be interesting because you'll probably want him speaking in, like his baseline should probably be um, the same accent that the other uh, actors are doing, but then changing his cadence to like an American cadence. Um, I don't know if you've heard that. I used to make fun of Nate Morley for that. Actually, I still kind of do a little bit. Um, that he doesn't like, after living in, in England and in London for a couple of years, he doesn't like speak with a British accent, but he's kind of got that British kind of cadence at the end where everything almost sounds like a question at the end. Like it's kind of how I feel like the British cadence kind of goes. So he like picked up on that without his mouth the, the muscles in his mouth still speak the way they always did when he was a kid. Cause that's how our bodies work. Like we just copy the mouths that we see near us when we're learning how to speak. Um, so it still does that. He hasn't like restructured, but the way in which we speak, we just kind of mimic what we hear. And so without even realizing it, so that'll be an interesting thing for an actor to, to, to bring up because I do remember in the play that that is a, a point they, they take from the book and and Connor talks about it in the play as well so we, we're gonna have to do that but it it'll be weird but fun and then I guess going beyond sort of the service level aspect of the father I guess what are your sort of thoughts on Connor's relationship with his father and because Connor clearly seems to like love his father like he's excited about the fact that his father is visiting but there also seems to be like a little bit of underlying resentment that his father has another family in America that Connor isn't really a part of his father's life anymore. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And it's complicated again, which is so neat. Cause sometimes I think we paint particularly kids with not so complicated feelings. It's uh, you know, the stuff where he calls him like these different names now. And he's like, why are you calling me champ? So he's recognizing it's almost like he wants the stability of, how things used to be with his dad, but they've changed now. So he's trying to hold on to the old things and those expectations. And then everything that changes kind of makes him angry. And uh, the, just the, the, the discomfort they they're having this conversation, I think at the like pizza parlor or something, right. In the, the section called champ here. And I, I really love the, just the details of the writing here. And it talks about, um, how like dad is taking his glass and kind of turning it. I could just like picture as I was reading that, the, the discomfort that they both have and talks about how Connor's like peeling off the label from his Coke bottle and scraping at that rather than looking at his dad while they're talking. And some, for one thing, it's really great task work for actors to be able to pull that from the book and, and use that in their, their physical portrayals. Um, but it's really neat that, that the author grabbed onto those things that kind of signify that we're kind of uncomfortable talking about what we're talking about. And he put it in here too. 
it's, it's, it's a, it's a really great tapestry. I think uh, once now that we've added dad into it of, of dad and grandma and um, Ms. Kwan, particularly these three adults who all know what's going on. I mean, Connor knows what's going on as well with mom, but he's kind of in this denial place. Right. And the three of them on the outside, um, but all three of them kind of uh, approach their support for Connor in different ways. Um, and it's a really cool tapestry of, of humanity in there to see because lots of us can relate to Connor from the end of having gone through different tragedies. But also I think many of us can relate to the, the grandma and the dad and, and the teacher in the sense that we've loved someone who is going through a, uh, a tragedy and we don't know exactly how to help them. And sometimes we're also going through that same tragedy, but we want to help like our younger sibling or, or somebody like that. And, and that's sometimes a struggle as well. So we get to see that through all of that. And then when you add, you know, mom to that and Harry and Lily, we've got a really great tapestry of characters here that are all unique and different, but like fully nuanced and fleshed out, even though we're seeing them all through Connor's viewpoint. It's really neat. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the really cool things about Monster Calls is just how nuanced it is. Like the more you, it's very simple, but it's that it's like simultaneously extremely nuanced. I guess sort of like moving on from like this idea of like his father coming, we also see this like move to his grandmother's house and both of these things, I think he's a little bit hostile towards because he like some, some, he never acknowledges it, but subconsciously he does, like he understands that both of these are signs that his mother's is getting worse, that the situation is looking worse. The fact that his father has come to visit and the fact that now he's moving to his grandmother's house. So I guess now looking at the grandmother's house, I'm assuming that's going to be an important setting in the play as well. So I guess what are your sort of thoughts on that setting description and what that sort of leaves for us as we put this play on? So I'm, I'm, I'm reading the book. I accidentally... And by accidental, I mean, I just didn't think about it. I left my monster call script with the other scripts at the school, which means they're all boxed away. And I don't know where they are right now um, for in the new school. So I don't have my script with me, but I was thinking about that exact thing that uh, you were thinking about, Zoe, as I was reading this whole section with grandma's house and, and the destruction of grandma's house. And I was like, oh, how does that work on stage? And I, I mean, I've seen it. I saw the play. I don't remember exactly how they did that. I remember this happened. I remember feeling the destruction, but also they did not do a giant set that then got destroyed. I remember that. And because uh, they just did everything with ropes there at the old Vic. So I think they did something there, but I wanted to look in the script and see in the script how it it says that that should be done. Because um Obviously, the point of the story is that nuance and simplicity, and it's not meant to be a giant set spectacular thing. Um, so they definitely don't want us to like build a giant set and destroy it. So it'll be fun for us. I think it's going to be one of those like physical theater type things. Like, how do we do this as an ensemble, create an environment when the, the main plot point is the destruction of that environment? Obviously, very symbolic for both him and grandma when she arrives and sees it. Um so I don't know, I guess is the, the short answer. I don't know exactly how we're going to do that, but it, it creates a really cool challenge for us. But I think the key to it will be to remember what it represents. It's not just a literal plot point, but why the, the tree 
which kind of works as our subconscious, right? The tree, like, here's the things you need to deal with. Why the tree actually kind of leads him to the destruction. And once we understand the, the, the symbolism underneath that and what's going on emotionally underneath it, I think that will help us understand what we need to do as theater makers to, to have that moment be as emotionally resonant as it needs to. Yeah, definitely. So I guess this sort of just leads us right into the second story then. And I guess like for a brief summary of what happens is that Connor is messing with his grandmother's clock and he ends up breaking it. It stops at 12.07 and the second tale begins. And the second tale is basically a story about an apothecary and a parsonage and the parsonage doesn't like the apothecary. The apothecary is kind of like a mean, greedy person. But then when the parsonage's daughters get sick, the parson begs the apothecary to save them and the apothecary doesn't. And Connor's expectation is that the tree, the monster, will intervene on the side of the parson and save the parson's daughters. But what ends up happening is that the monster intervenes on the side of the apothecary, saying that the parson believed selfishly. He It says, like, quote, he was a man who lived on belief, but he believed selfishly and fearfully. So I guess the first question is, like, that's a lot to unpack, obviously. So what are your first sort of ideas on what this tale is sort of trying to tell Connor and trying to tell us and what it sort of means. Well, it's obviously in a tradition of the first story, purposefully um, not obvious. It's obviously (laughs) purposely not obvious in, in it's the moral of it in the sense that, um, well, I mean, the tree says like, no, I think this is a much more simple story. It, it doesn't have the moral ambiguity of the other one. Um, and so Connor's like, okay, great. Then you can tell it to me. And then Connor kind of gets angry at the end. He's like, no, you said this was going to be simple. He's like, it is simple. The problem was just that Connor assumed the hero again was not who it was. Um, and the, and the U tree says, the tree monster says like, I'm not saying that either of these people were perfect um, and, and they both were problematic, but uh, you missed how, how this person was problematic in this way. Um, it also kind of surprised me as well. Again, reading it. Um, it surprised me when I first saw it, but now reading in the book, it, I was like, Oh gosh, how the reason why the tree says the, the pastor is, is the problem here. Um and uh, I'm I'm still kind of making that out in my life that he the he talked about how he he went back on his belief he believed something and he went back on that and he shouldn't have done that and so I I'm still like what so what's the what's the point here like are we saying like don't ever change your mind about something or like do you know what I mean um, uh, it's a as we've mentioned with the other one, it's, it's kind of complicated, even for adults reading this, like, what is, what am I supposed to take from this story? But I, I, it just doesn't seem that the yew tree is concerned with nice, clean morals. And, and here's the moral to the story of what you should take for, from your life. And maybe what he's doing right now is just introducing Connor to the complexities of life and that there aren't clean morals and and maybe I was wrong to destroy this and and maybe whatever but um our feelings and our relationships are not um always as simple as 
fairy tale stories might lead them to be maybe is what he's trying to get Connor to accept and understand um, as there aren't necessarily clean cut good, good guys and bad guys. And, and maybe that'll help him at the end of the story, forgive himself when he realizes, yeah, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's definitely like a really complicated story. Like still staying within the story itself, the tree ends up being like, that like Connor's like, well, what did you expect the parson to do? And the tree is like, well, I expected him to have given the apothecary the yew tree the first time he asked. Because the thing that the apothecary keeps asking for is for the yew tree to use the yew tree as medicine. And the parson is like, no, this tree, it's nice. It protects the church. It's been here a really long time. I'm not going to let you touch this yew tree. And so I guess, I don't know, that was something really interesting too. I think I'm still like trying to figure out what exactly that means in Connor's life and also my own life too like this, that statement of I expected the parson to have given the tree the first time he asked. Well, it says he believed selfishly and fearfully. When the times were easy, the parson nearly destroyed the apothecary. But when the going grew tough, he was willing to throw aside his every belief if it would save his daughters. And so I think, I guess that's the closest we get to like a moral there is, is um, acting selfishly and fearfully. Um, which is what he's trying to help Connor understand that not to do, I guess. I think like our listeners at home will also probably just be wrestling with this on their own. I will definitely be looking at, I guess, more into this as we work on the play. But I guess moving from the story itself briefly to what that actually ends up, how it manifests in the real world. Because we're seeing that these like stories are kind of building up and like manifesting in the actual, like Connor's actual life more and more. And this is sort of like where it really gets going, where the tree is destroying the, the parson's house and then invites Connor to join in. But then what we realize is Connor has actually been joining, has been destroying his grandmother's sitting room. So I guess, what are your thoughts on sort of what this means in like Connor's journey and the sort of development and the sort of turn that it takes and that Connor is literally just destroying his grandmother's sitting room? Well, um, it's uh, interesting uh, how it talks about it. Um, Patrick Ness uh, takes the time to make sure that we understand on a couple different occasions that this feels good to Connor and the, the tree kind of like the tree, whatever the tree represents, right. Of our subconscious or, or not um, that encourages it because he's like, doesn't that feel good to do this? Like, yeah, that did feel good to, to, to do that. And uh, you know, there's all sorts of things with grief. Um, and being able to be in control of something, um, I know is a thing you feel so like out of control, like I can't control what's going on with my mother and, and things like that from Connor's point of view. Um, and kind of that destruction of you being in charge of the destruction and not just waiting for it to happen uh, and not knowing when that's going to be um, feels good because you're finally in charge of something. Um, and uh all of the, the fear and anger and stuff that he's been holding inside. I think it might be the first step to, well, maybe not the first step, maybe the second or third step or something, but to Connor recognizing and that, well, not recognizing, but almost like admitting that his mother is dying. You know what I mean? Um, and that that is painful. And the destruction is is an outward manifestation of that because he's been kind of keeping it in himself and kind of refusing when he knows, like we, we've, we've seen in the chapters leading up to the story that 
people mention it like, well, so after you're going to come live with grandma, he's like, after what? Mom's going to be fine. I'm going to live with mom. And he's kind of in this kind of denial place. And I think the destruction kind of helps bridge him out of the denial into, oh no, this is actually a real thing. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but it's rough. I, I love my favorite part of it is grandma actually. Um, and the kind of surprising take that we keep getting on, on grandma. I think she's a really fascinating character. I love um, earlier uh, it describes grandma and how she kind of lives her life and takes care of her house in a way that feels like it's supposed to be negative. Cause it's from Connor's point of view, but I was like, wow, she seems really on top of everything. Do you know what I mean? It, how like clean she keeps everything. And even though she has a maid, she still like cleans her house herself. Cause she feels like I live by myself. Who else is going to do that? I can't rely on someone else to do that for me. And it talks about, she's like, he's like, he shows up to, she takes him to school, even though it's 45 minutes away, he's there early every time. And I'm like, wow, she sounds awesome to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, good job. Even though it's written, like from Connor's point of view, it's like, oh, this is so obnoxious. But it sounds like she's like on top of things and has everything kind of kept in order. And then when she comes home, sees the destruction, we're all expecting her to get like really angry. I think Connor is expecting her to get really angry at him, but to see all the order and pristineness that she keeps her life in completely destroyed, I think is the catalyst to also her dealing with the death of her daughter. Cause again, she can't control it. It's not something she can control. I think that that's one of those um, subconscious things for grandma that she keeps her house in such a pristine um, order. Cause that's what she can control. Um, especially when we're going through kind of trauma, that's something that, that lots of humans, if you're, um, if that's kind of where your brain goes is we like to control the things we can't control and she can control her environment. So when she comes home and finds out she can't, like she didn't control it. It's now all over the place. Like her emotions feel inside. It kind of erupts for her emotionally. And she very much like uh, someone like her would locks herself in her room and, and lets that out for hours and hours and hours because it's now the control is gone now as manifest by the, the room. So, so it's kind of a cool thing about Connor and, and his development in dealing with his grief, but it's also, I think, an interesting step in grandma's. Um, that is the, the symbolism of the sitting room and the destruction of it symbolizes something for Connor, but I think it also does for grandma. Yeah, definitely. That was kind of like what my next question was going to be. So you kind of covered a lot of that already. But I guess another interesting thing about the grandmother's reaction that stood out to me is I'm pretty sure what happens is she comes in and there's only one thing left standing. It's like some sort of shelf that used to contain things. And what she does is she's the one who takes that shelf down. Like you expect her to like, you know, not, but she partakes in that sort of destruction. So I guess it is like really like, it's very profound in like her reaction of like, she too needs to like, she's going through the same thing as Connor, even if she's an adult, she's also going through this idea of learning how to let go of and like learning how to deal with this really difficult situation. Yeah. Which reminds me of a, a just a short passage earlier on in this section where she's talking to Connor. I think it's towards the beginning of the section. Um, and it says that she looks just right over the top of him. She doesn't really look at him and make eye contact with him. She's like looking right over the top of his head, like kind of always. Um, which I think is an interesting symbolism for her that she's not really 
addressing it again until this moment when then she comes in and and throws that i don't remember because i've stopped reading now at this point so i'm interested to see like where they take that with grandma and does is this lead to healing for her and acceptance for her or is she gonna get really mad at him i genuinely don't remember what happens next so that's an exciting little cliffhanger (laughs) um but uh yeah did this kind of open doors of healing the, the, the beginning of the process of healing for her. I mean, mom hasn't even, which is her daughter, Connor's mom hasn't even died yet, but uh, it, it is a whole process when you know, when you see a, a, a loved one and it's not just like a surprise death, but you're, we you watch it happen step-by-step. Step. It's a kind of a, a whole different type of grief almost. And as you have to deal with it before it happens and, yeah, it's interesting to see her do that too. Yeah, so I guess like this is kind of, as we're winding down this whole episode, I think since this is the midpoint of the entire story or what we're reaching right now, we've kind of been introduced to the basic premises and stuff. And now I think what Patrick Ness is doing is sort of building in these nuances. So if we see like Lily, Ms. Kwan, his father, the grandmother, and these sort of like ways that we're seeing nuance kind of creep into the story, I guess. So I guess any parting thoughts on the story so far, we're pretty much at the halfway point of the story and any reflections on what that might mean. Um, I think we've done a good job of kind of talking about the, the nuances, of the story and where we are right now. Um, the, a cool thing that I've noticed that they do in the book that I, I hope is reflected in the script and I want to reflect or I want to incorporate it in how we create the, the play as well as uh, kind of in the writing style of, of Patrick Ness and how he can jumps us in mid every time there's kind of like a jump to a different quote unquote scene in the book, we kind of jump in partway through and it takes us a second to figure out, okay, what's, where are we here? And it'll like jump to, he felt the fist in his stomach. Like, what, 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 what are we talking about? Who are we with now? What's going on? Instead of saying like, and he was walking to school and then Harry came over and punched him in the stomach. Like we jump in mid action as he jumps to each like new scene, which I think is a cool thing that, that resonates well in theater. If we can also um, handle those transitions really quickly and smoothly and, and jump partway through and then give the audience the couple of seconds it takes to catch up with us and then go from there. So it kind of feels like it's all propelling forward to an inevitable end. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out with what I've noticed about the writing of the story um, so that we remember as we make our piece of theater to keep that going. I think those transitions are going to be very, very important. And then the transitions in the story when the tree is telling stories and he kind of uses this mist that like envelops them and then all of a sudden they're in a new place and he tells the next part of the story and it says and then the mist kind of surrounded them again and now they're up on the hill and and those transitionary moments also are going to be really neat so i think as as usual in theater but particularly in this like the transitions between locations and and uh sections of the story are going to be i think vital in uh, make helping the audience feel that they're going on the journey that Connor is going on. So I guess I think we'll probably end the episode around here. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for joining us. If you've listened to all these episodes so far and we'll be getting to episode four with the third story in our next episode. 
So thank you guys all for listening. Bye.